Amen. So I'll take this moment to thank um, you as a church in the going home of my mother. Um, just thanks for your prayers and your love and compassion. Um, we found out yesterday, last week before I preached that she was going downhill. And someone asked, well, you need, you need to go. My mom would have beat my backside if she knew I left church because of her. You can laugh at that because it's, it's true. And so, but so she's in a better place. for My mom suffered for many years. Um, and so she is in glory, and we are grateful for that. And it kind of goes along with our message today, um, talking about Jesus completing his mission on the cross. And this is what gives us hope in the times of death that we will see our Savior, we will see our loved ones because of this story this morning. So today we're going to finish the book of Mark. It's been a great study. I've, I've loved going through the book of Mark. I've learned so much. But remember, our, our focus, our verse was, was Mark 10.45. You'll see it on the screen this morning. For even the Son of Man came to not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This was Jesus' mission, to give his life a ransom for many. That was his mission from the moment he stepped into the cosmos. When he came to earth in his first advent and we celebrated at Christmas, he, his whole purpose was to come to reconcile God and man. Paul told it this way in Philippians, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. This is what he was come to do. So since that moment in history, Christians have become very cross-cultural, right? Hopefully we live with the cross in mind every day. Here's how that looked. Here, here, here's what that looks like. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Corinthians. All he wanted was to be living Christ and him crucified. He said it again to the church of Galatia. He says, he glories only in the crucified Christ. We should live a cross-cultural life, meaning the cross is our forefront. Think of baptism, our ordinances, baptism and communion. Baptism represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ when we're baptized. Communion. We remember what? We remember the cross that Jesus died on for our sins. So we should live with the cross in mind. So this morning, I'd like us to look at four important stories as we close out the book of Mark. Our first story is, is Mark chapter 14, 1 through 9. We're going to see Jesus having dinner with some of, a few of his friends. Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Simon, his disciples. Jesus loved to eat. He was always around eating, eating things. Much like many of you do as well. The second story we're going to talk about, of course, is that famous story of the upper room discourse, Jesus with his disciples, that last meal he had with them at Passover, the Last Supper. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the crucifixion in Mark 15. I want us to really understand, we, we read the crucifixion, yeah, yeah, okay, Jesus did, understanding what a crucifixion was and what it meant in Roman society and what it meant for Jesus to be crucified for us. And then we're going to close with that verse in Mark 15 that talked about the veil being torn in two. That picture there, and that we, that's one verse in all four Gospels, but it tells what the death of Jesus Christ means for you and me, that we have access to the throne of God. No more veil is needed. So let's begin, Mark 14, look at verse 1. 
It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Remember, the religious leaders, all these people wanted Jesus dead, and they were trying to find any way they could to try to get this guy. Verse 2, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So they like, we can't do this now, let's just wait for our time. Now understand what's happening here. Passover. Passover is, of course, Israel, the Jewish people celebrating the, the passing of the death angel. Remember when God told the, the children of Israel in Egypt, listen, you put the blood of a, a lamb on top of the doorpost and the angel, the death angel would pass by you. That's what Passover represents, God's grace to those people. Of course, the Passover represents for us Jesus being that final sacrifice. But what we may not know is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, if that continued on after Passover, it was a week celebration. And it represented, Israel would not eat any bread without yeast in it. Yeast was represented as sin or wickedness or evil. Remember, Jesus would reference the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven was not something that was good, and they celebrated this. The idea was this, this, this thought that when they left Egypt in haste, quickly, they remembered that during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So I want you to get a picture here this morning of what was happening in Jerusalem at this moment when Jesus was meeting with his fr- friends, was meeting with the disciples. Remember last week we talked, there was 250 lambs that were being brought to Jerusalem for sacrifice. So one lamb would represent 8 to 10 people, a family, 8 to 10 people. So when you kind of do the math, you're looking at probably about 2 million people that have made a trek to Jerusalem for Passover and for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is a lot of people. So if you would think about the Texas State Fair, never been there, but 2.2 million people visit that fair each year. So I want to put in our minds here of the amount of people that are in Jerusalem at this time. And it's going to come into play when we talk about the crucifixion as well. What would happen during the Feast of Unleavened Bread is there would be rabbis telling stories of the Exodus, of what God did and how God brought them out. There would be songs sung, worship songs about the, the Exodus. I think we could relate it to our 4th of July. We have a 4th of July service. We're singing patriotic songs. We're singing about our country. Well, the nation of Israel here is singing songs of God's deliverance from Egypt. And this is what would happen during this week. Children would have games and riddles. And so it it was a big festival for Jewish people. So let's see what happened as Jesus meets with his friends here in Bethany. Verse 3, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask, an ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, we can see John's camera angle to see who was all in attendance at this, this dinner. We have Lazarus. We have Mary, Martha. We have Jesus. We have Simon the ex-leper. And we have his disciples. Can you imagine, just think about it a minute, the, the conversation that Simon the leper and Lazarus would have, the stories they could tell? Sitting there with Jesus and Simon saying now he's healed from leprosy. Hey, Lazarus, tell what, what happened to you. Amazing, sitting there talking of God's grace. What we see here is an amazing act of worship by Mary. Mary came to Jesus with this alabaster, this marble flask that she broke it with this spike nard ointment that was in it. Now, a few things about this ointment we don't really... Uh, it's not something we have in our house. It's actually still very expensive today. It's found in India, in India. It's actually an essential oil for all you ladies who are in essential oils. All right. I was going to buy some for Judy, but I looked at the price. You know what a 16-ounce bottle of this was today? Go ahead, put it up. $2,986. 
uh, no essential oils for me. If it grew hair, I might put it on my head. I, right, John? Where's John? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know what a five-pound container of this costs? Thirteen thousand dollars. Why I tell you this is this ointment, even back in this day and even today, it says there in verse 5, 300 denarii was worth more than. Well, a denarii, they compute, compute to being about $8 per one denarii. Back in this time, it was, probably, it was U.S. dollars, being $2,500 this ointment was worth. And Mary just dumps it on Jesus' head. One thing we learn here, we're going to look at four pillars of truth this morning through these stories. Our first pillar of truth this morning is this. Worship costs us something. Worship should cost us something. Martha, her sister, was busy serving. Sometimes she gets the, the, the bad rap. She's over there serving, not paying attention to Jesus. Well, she was serving. Mary was doing what she was called to do, and that was giving Jesus this expensive home and worshiping him. Serving and worshiping are both important, aren't they? You can't be a true worshiper of Jesus and then not serve him. And you, you can't just serve Jesus and not worship him. They go hand in hand. They work together. We're, it's what we should be doing in our life. Worship in our life should cost us. What does worship cost you? Not just coming to church. I'm talking about in your life. Life is worship. What does it cost us? Mary gives this $2,500 expensive ointment in worship. What do people view you when, when you worship and you live your life to God? Do people are skeptical of what you do, maybe even some Christians? I, I don't want to hear the words that Jesus gave the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, using the, the words of Isaiah 500 years prior. It says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I would, not, I would hope Jesus would not say to Jason Palmer, You just speak with your mouth, you don't live the life. That's what Jesus here is telling the, the religious leaders. Listen, worship costs us something. Well, there's going to be those that will discourage us and maybe judge us. And that's what happened here. Look at verse 4. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded Mary. Can you imagine Jesus there? Mary's worship, worshiping him, and all of a sudden, yeah, why, why would you dump all that stuff on his head? That, that's great. We could, we could have made some money off this. That's what he's saying. Well, John 12 tells us who the main culprit of this discouragement was. Guess what his name was? Judas. Yeah, the money-making scoundrel. He always, always looking to make a buck. Look at verse 6, and Jesus says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can go... You can go do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And Jesus there is insinuating again, listen, uh, I'm going to die here. I'm trying to get these disciples to get this. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about this moment of worship for Mary. Here we are. Worship costs us something. What does worship cost you? What does it cost us when we worship our Savior? Let's continue on down the chapter here, Mark 14. Now we come to the point where Jesus is now having this intimate meal, this Passover meal, the upper room discourse with his disciples. Jesus has to find a room away. Remember, people are out to seek to kill him. They want to take him out. 
Let's look at verse 12 here, and let's read this story down to verse 21. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will we have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. Verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to, to one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is the one of the twelve who was dipping the bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he were not born. The story kind of takes us back to Mark 11. Remember when Jesus in the triumphal entry, he sent two of his disciples to go grab the colt? See, God, Jesus orchestrated, he coordinated everything that was set in eternity past. He's God. He had planned out. So here's what he told the disciples in Luke chapter 22. It's Peter and John. Hey, go, you're going to look for a guy, a guy carrying a water jug in town. Well, there's a couple things you, we need to know culturally. A man carrying a water jug in this culture, you didn't see. This was a woman's task. This was a woman's job. It'd be like if a, if a guy today was carrying a purse down the street. Well, I guess I can't say that today anymore. Um, maybe 50 years ago. A, well, a guy carrying a purse down the street, say, whoa, what's going on there? Well, that's the same idea here. This man was carrying this, this water jug, and Jesus says, when you see that guy, I want you to ask him, hey, where's the room? And he actually was the owner of the house. So Jesus coordinated this plan that was already made, made out in, in eternity past. Jesus made a startling revelation that evening with his disciples. He asked, one of you, he said, one of you are going to betray me. And guess who it was? It's Judas. I know growing up and reading this story, I always ask this question. And maybe we can just talk about it for a few moments here. Why did Jesus pick Judas? Would we pick, we, okay, we can't divide, he, he was 100% God, 100% man. So in his deity, he knew Judas was going to betray him. And as, as a human, is like, would we have a guy on our team that we know is going to stab us in the back? Well, we understand prophecy tells us that there was going to be a man who was going to betray him. Psalms, Psalms 41 and Psalms 55. We understand that. But understand Judas, we, scholars believe that he was following Jesus for one reason and one reason only. He really thought that Jesus was the Messiah that was going to overthrow the Roman government. And can you imagine when Jesus started flipping over tables in the synagogue? He's like, he's the guy. Yep, this is the guy. But he was gravely disappointed because Jesus was not that Messiah at that time. Meaning he was not come to take over the world. That will come in the future. So to answer that question, Judas fulfilled prophecy. But the second pillar of truth this morning is this, and it's a very simple truth, is this, that Love is a must in our faith. Love is a must in our faith. Jesus truly loved Judas. Despite knowing what Judas would do to Jesus, Jesus loved him. Jesus protected Judas until the very end. 
gave him every opportunity to repent. Imagine the things that Judas seen these three years with Jesus. But this is a man who sinned away his opportunities. See, for us, Judas represents those people in our lives or in the world. We ask those, those evil people, those wicked people, and say, why would, why would God love them? How could God love them? But we still see Jesus showing Judas the same love he showed the other disciples. Because it goes back to what Peter said later in 1 Peter chapter 3. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the love of our Savior. That is the love of Jesus. And even with Judas. So when we are hated, when we are persecuted, when we are mocked, when we are ridiculed, love is a must. Jesus tells his disciples throughout the Gospels, love your enemies. So there's issues that happen in our, in our life, in our world, where we are attacked and we are ridiculed. We must love as Jesus loved, as Jesus showed here with Judas. Now, quickly, I want to take a quick sidebar because it fits in here because culturally there's things that are happening in our society that we will be mocked and ridiculed for. Particularly right now, today, uh, Dr. John MacArthur set out this particular Sunday as Conversion Sunday. Let me explain what's going on here. So, in the country of Canada, they passed legislation, 100%, called, it was a legislation called C4. Now, C4 is this legislation that tells um, the, the country that a teacher, preacher, uh, parent cannot convert someone who lives in the LGBTQ lifestyle or the transgender lifestyle. You can't change, try to change their mind, or you will spend five years in prison. Right now, this very moment, there are 300 Canadian pastors who are preaching the biblical view of sexuality in their churches. So what I ask you to do is when you go home and, we, and you pray for your lunch today, pray for those pastors. I, we don't know what's going to happen to them. But we can't be surprised. Because what did Peter say in 1 Peter 4? Don't be surprised when fiery trials come and test you as though something strange has happened to you. We go, well, I can't believe it's bound to happen. It's bound to happen. But we say, but rejoice insofar as much as you share in Christ's suffering. When these things happen, and they will, we'll rejoice. We will love our enemies because that's what Jesus has called us to do. So I want to say, as, this, as John MacArthur has called this Conversion Sunday, I want to be very, very clear. And we've, we've, we've kind of spoke about this throughout the book of Mark when it came to cultural issues. But I just want to be very clear as we're on live on Facebook and we're here, I want to be very clear where Faith Bible Church stands on these issues. Can I do that this morning? Okay, a couple of you think I can. Okay, so number one is this. Faith Bible Church believes there are two genders. There is man and there is woman. There's a him and there's a her. There's no zizas, theirs, or zoes. There's just not. It's delusional. It doesn't exist. Okay, make sure I'm preaching to the right people here this morning. The Bible is very, very clear. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, God made man and woman. Number two is this. You are, you are the gender you were born as. You just were. If you came out of your mother's womb, a man, and had male plumbing, you are a him. If you came out of your mother's womb as a woman, and you have woman plumbing, you are a she. It's just as simple as that. See, Psalms 139 says that God intricately woven you in your mother's womb, in the depths of the earth. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God doesn't make mistakes. 
You see, if God made a mistake making someone the sex that they are, if God made a mistake, then therefore he's not perfect. And if he's not perfect, therefore he can't be God. And if he can't God, then we have a seriously theological problem, don't we? But he is perfect, and he doesn't make mistakes, and you are who he created you to be. We're on the same page on that one? This is what we believe. This is where we stand. Thirdly, marriage is between Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. Sorry. One man and one woman. Jesus verified that in Mark chapter 10 when he got that question about divorce from the Pharisees. He goes, well, let's go back to see what God says about marriage. He said, listen, marriage is between one man and one woman. Society can legalize same-sex marriages. Okay, great. It's not a marriage in God's eyes. I'm just speaking the truth here this morning. Young people, you are going to live this. You are, gonna, you are the ones that may be mocked in school for taking this standard, be called, become haters. No, no, no. This is what the truth is. We love those individuals. Again, love is a must in our faith. We do this out of grace and, and love, hoping that someday they will see the truth of God and come to faith in Christ and realize that what they're living is wrong and it's sin. But this is the fight our Canadian brethren are having in their country, and it may come to a neighborhood near us very soon, but we will not stop speaking the truth of what God says. We can't confuse culture anymore. It's already jacked up. One man, one woman. You're born a man or you're born a woman. Bottom line. Can I get an amen? Okay. Let's move on. Love is a must in our faith. And when those people come at us, we love them and we share the truth. Okay, so now here we come. Jesus is now in the Passover, in that upper room discord with his disciples. And this is a passage of scripture we use during communion. Mark 14, 23 to 25. says this, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this, my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank. And he said to them, this is my, my blood of covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here we see Jesus telling his disciples for the fourth and final time, telling him of what's going to happen to him, of his death. Remember, the disciples weren't quite getting it. So here he is again. Listen, here's what's going to happen. We see the disciples are going to have a front row view literally, of Jesus' crucifixion and of his death. It's going to be a reality for them. So this is the remainder book of Mark goes into these events that lead to Jesus' death on the cross. Well, it starts when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that story where he sweated drops of blood because of the agony in which he was about to go through. In his, in, his, in his deity, he knew humanly what was coming. And he was in such stress and duress where he called to his father, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And we know that there was silence from heaven because Jesus needed to drink this cup. So then he stood before the religious councils in Mark chapter 14 and verses 53 to 65. Remember, he's standing before councils. Many of those individuals on that council were many of those religious leaders throughout the book of Mark that were trying to test and try him, always trying to trick him. These are the guys. They got him exactly where they wanted him. Then we see Jesus was delivered, the pilot in, in Mark 15. Pilate's like, listen, I, 
see what Herod says. They walk through the streets, go to Herod, okay, Herod, okay, Herod says, listen, I, you did nothing wrong here. Back to Pilate again. And of course, we know Pilate says, listen, I washed my hands, this guy has not done, done anything wrong. So I, you can choose Barabbas or Jesus. Who do you want to release? Who do they release? Barabbas, the criminal. And then the Roman army mocked and crucified Jesus and beat him beyond recognition. I want to talk a little bit about a few facts about the crucifixion that we may not know about. It was a state-sponsored torture. That's what it was. It was state-sponsored torture. It affected your physical, emotional, and mental state all in one. It, it, you just, you, they were tearing you down in all those areas. The purpose of the Roman crucifixion was for, to see how long the victims could last being tortured. In fact, history tells us that the longest individual to survive a crucifixion hanging on the cross was nine days. It's a long period of time to be in pain and agony. See, the Roman government thrived. They were professionals at this. So whatever job you're at, you're good at your job, you're a professional. These guys were professionals at torturing people. Imagine having that on your resume. In fact, when you read the story of Spartacus, Spartacus, when he was defeated, the Roman armies captured 6,000 of his soldiers. And there is a road in Rome called the Apian Way, 132 miles. And what the Roman emperor did with those POWs is he lined the road with crosses and he crucified all 6,000 of them, 132 miles. This is what the Roman government does with crucifixion. It was public. It was made to humiliate you. And I want you to remember back of what we said. What was happening here in Jerusalem, the Feast of Unleavened Bread? How many people were in this area during this time? About two million people. This was a public humiliation, not just for people in Jerusalem, but for those from the surrounding areas who were coming to make their sacrifice. Jesus was not walking around empty streets. They were packed. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was flogged with the cat of nine tails. We understand, we've heard this story of leather straps with glass and metal and hooks, and when they would hit the flesh of a human being, it literally would fillet you. Of course, it fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus was marred. He was beaten beyond recognition. And not, just not that, that he was made to carry this cross down the Via Della Rosa through the streets of Jerusalem. And he became so weak that they had to have a guy named Simon carry his cross. This is what Jesus did for us to pay for our sin. There's a misconception here of, of Jesus. You know, I used to go to a church called Mount Calvary. Jesus died on a hill called Mount Calvary. When the, we were in Israel several years ago. I kind of was asking some questions about this. See, a, a Roman crucifixion happened in public streets where people can continue to mock and jeer, spit at you, throw stuff at you. So if you ever see, ever see pictures of Golgotha, it's very interesting, this, this, this mountain that has a, has a, a skull face. And I asked him, wasn't Jesus on the, didn't he die on the cross? No, 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 no. That's, a, that's a rock up there. There's no way you can get a cross in that rock. So Jesus and, his, and these, these two criminals died at the base of Golgotha at a main thoroughfare through Jerusalem. Because what crucifixion, what people to walk by and spit and curse at you and yell at you and spit, throw stuff at you. So understand, this is, what, this is what's happening with Jesus. 
Look at verse 33, 37. This is the end of his life, and I want to focus on something here as we close. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the, until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this very moment, sins, past, present, and future, were upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, where God the Father had to look away from his Son. Why have you forsaken me? Behold, he's calling Elijah, some said. Verse 36. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come down and take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. I want you to understand verse 36 is not a plea of mercy from this Roman soldier. It was continued derision and mockery at the very last breath of Jesus. People say, oh, you put a sponge in, get him something to drink. Do you give someone who's thirsty sour wine or vinegar? No. And and what I'm going to share with you, I don't mean to be crude, I don't mean to be crass this morning, but this is culturally relevant of what happened in Jesus' crucifixion and what verse 36 means. Here's a picture, let me start with this story. Here's a picture of the late John Fogel and I. We are sitting actually on a community outhouse in Bethsaida in Israel. He's holding toilet paper. Yes, that's what it is, because when you look at it, it's like, what are you sitting on? Well, you see the holes there by our legs, and that's the place where they would clean out the refuge of, uh, of, the, of the bathrooms. It's very interesting when you read history, you understand what this reed and sponge meant in, cru- in this crucifixion story. You see, the Roman aristocrats and Roman soldiers, they would pay slaves or pay employees. They would be, imagine having a job where you would clean those bathrooms every time someone went. Well, a reed and a sponge was meant to clean the backsides of individuals who have gone to the bathroom. Again, I don't mean to be crude and crass. I'm trying to put, prove a point here this morning. And they would use a sponge and a reed, and they would go, and that slave would clean. Well, infection would set in, so they would dip it in sour wine for antiseptic, I guess, to where it would not get infected. So the reed and sponge was actually part of the Roman soldier gear that they would carry. You guys that served in the military, you have a toiletry bag that you would carry along with all your gear. Roman soldier carried a reed and a sponge. Jesus Christ, the last breath he took was staring into a toilet brush. It wasn't enough that he beat him beyond recognition. It wasn't enough they made him carry his cross. It wasn't enough that they continually put a crown of thorns on his head. But but some smart punk Roman soldier goes up and says, hey, you want something to drink? Here, drink this. That's what Jesus did for us. Up until his final breath, he was mocked. He was derided. And do you know what Jesus said through all this? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. If you and I had power to come off the cross, if I had power off the cross, I'd be like, yeah, it's it's on right now. We all would. You know it. But Jesus was on mission. His mission was to reconcile, to die for the sins of these people who are deriding him. Our third pillar of truth this morning is this. Forgive as Christ forgave. 
Forgive as Christ forgave. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 4.32. He says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ hath forgiven or hath forgave you. The next per time you are annoyed or with that person at work or your family members, kids with your brothers and sisters, that neighbor that's driving you nuts, I, just, I, can't, I can't deal with that. He did something, I, I, I can't forgive him. Oh, really? Oh, really? Remember Jesus. Remember what he did for you on that cross. Remember all the pain and the agony that he went through for you. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You can forgive, brothers and sisters. We can forgive. So as we close out, Jesus, it dies on the cross. And at that very moment, look at verse 38, Mark 15. He says this, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That represented no more sacrifice. Those 250 lambs that were brought for sacrifice to Jerusalem to Passover and to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, they were the last 250 lambs sacrificed because Jesus was the final sacrifice. Remember, the temple had two chambers. You had the holy place where the priests would do their daily functions. Then you had a curtain dividing into the Holy of Holies. This curtain was 60 feet in length, 30 feet high. So if you take your hand and you go from thumb to finger, the curtain was 10 inches thick. Can you imagine making that curtain? Purple and scarlet thread. And you can see there were, there were images of cherubims and seraphims on this curtain. Amazing detail. It took 300 priests to hang. 300 priests to hang. So we had these the dividers, these curtains that were up dividing our balconies a couple years ago. We took them down, and we had three or four guys help us. Three or four guys, these curtains. 300 people, priests, to hang this curtain. It entered the Holy of Holies. You see, when Jesus took his last breath, that veil was torn from top to bottom. And for the first time in humanity, we as humans had access to the throne of God. You see, the Old Testament, they had to go through a priest. Prophets spoke to God. They could, they could talk to God. They could seek God, but they could not access God without going through the right procedure and the protocol. But because of Jesus' death, humanity now has direct access to God. So what the priest would do, he took the blood of a bull, he would walk into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it on the ark for his sin. And then he would take the, the blood of a goat, and he would sprinkle it on the ark, and it would be the sins for the families, for the nation of Israel. Priests would wear bells on the bottom of their robes. I guess you could say that was the first bell bottom that was made. First, the first service didn't really get that, so I kind of look, look stupid standing up here. They wore bells on their robe because they wanted to hear them moving around in the Holy of Holies. And if they would not hear those bells dinging, they tied a rope around their ankle when the priest entered in because if they didn't hear the bells, that means they were dead because they did something wrong. Their heart was not where it needed to be. They didn't confess. They didn't do the thing. You can look in Leviticus of the detail of what a priest had to do within that holy of holies. It's pretty detailed. I think I would fail that test. But they would pull the priest out. Okay, you're coming off the bench. Your turn. You'd be like, ah. 
But that's how being in the Holy of Holies was. And when Jesus died, it leads to our fourth pillar of truth this morning, and it's this, God's throne is open for all. God's throne is open for all. See, the wrath of the Father was satisfied when he poured down the sins of mankind on Jesus. That moment, the veil was torn. We now, that was the final perfect sacrifice for humanity. We now can go to the throne room of God. For all my Catholic friends that are here who grew up Catholic, guess what? You do not need a priest to forgive your sin. In fact, they can't forgive your sin because they're humans just like you and me. They sin just like you and me. I know when I do a ride along with the police department, a sergeant will put me with a guy, hey, chaplain, let him confess all his sins to you. He needs it. Right? Because it's this Catholic mentality. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you and you and you and me, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And it's all because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. He says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember the first verse we started out with? Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Mission complete. The veil was torn. We now have access to God. I love what Hebrews 4 says. We can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what? Mercy. Mercy. But the mission is not really complete. It, sins are forgiven. But in the area of our faith... What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. Well, let me tell you, something happened three days later. Do you guys know what happened three days later? Our Savior rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, giving us full access to the Father 24-7, 365 days a week. And he's coming to, he's coming to get us. Like Paul says, like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the sound of the last trumpet and the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are, remain, are, are alive and remain will be caught up into clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He says this, therefore encourage one another with these words. I'm here to encourage you this morning, church, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross by paying for our sin, tearing that veil into where we now direct access to God. Anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can come boldly before the throne of grace, receive forgiveness, and he's coming to get us, to take us out of this sing, sick world. But guess what? What Jesus did, he completed his mission, but he passed the mission to us. And if we go to the end of any of the Gospels, we go to Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascended into heaven, what is our mission? It's for us to share this mission complete of what Jesus had done for us and what he has done for you and how he has changed you into a new creature in Christ. So now we're in mission. We need to share this good news. We need to share what Jesus has done for us. If you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, listen, he's calling you. He's calling you. You can go directly right to God. God, forgive me. I'm sorry. Come into my life. You can stand there right in the presence of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
So we're going to close this morning with a, with a song. Have the band come up. We're going to close. We sang it last week, but I, I love this tune. Living Hope. We're going to sing the last verse. So we're going to pray as they get ready. So if we would stand, we'll close in prayer. And we're going to sing this song because he is our living hope. Amen, church? He is our living hope. And someday we will see him in the clouds. But we will reign with him forever and ever. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Father, for this redemptive story. Well, I can't imagine living in the Old Testament. I know there was rules and regulations about temple worship, but living here on this side of the cross, I am grateful to have direct access to your throne room, to when I blow it and when I sin, I can come directly to you and receive mercy. Thank you, God. Thank you. Let's sing together. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, Lord Jesus. We thank you. You are our living hope. Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, that you willingly went to the cross for our sin. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, God. We thank you for what you're doing in this church and in the lives of every single one of the people here. Lord Jesus, I ask you give us the wisdom and the strength to stand up for you. God, we know times are going to be tough. God, we know that we're going to be continually attacked, but we have you. We have your word, and we thank you for that. For it's in your son's name we pray.
Amen. You're dismissed.